Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Reorient Podcast. Today is the 29th of June, 2023. And today I'm very pleased to welcome an old friend of mine and a very interesting guest, Andrew Hubert, who is an expert on what is happening now with Mexico and trade and investment from China and in the context of U.S.-China relations and everything else that's going on. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Jesse. It's great to be here. So, Andrew, um, if you would, um, give us, our guests, some highlights about your background, which is a very unique one, and how you got to be in the position that you are today. Um, I am an old China hand. Uh, I spent 10 years in China from 2002 to 2012. And that really was the central uh, experience of my my, my, my career. Uh, I, had, I, I got my MBA from New York University uh, in 1989. Yes, which officially makes me old. And I uh, went right over as a study international finance, went over to Japan, um, didn't, I mean, liked it, but didn't think it was the future. Spent a few years in Taipei, um, as so many of us did. And uh, then after a brief stint in Hong Kong, up to China, to Shanghai, where I saw China go from will it or will it make it or won't it make it as a, as a market economy to uh, 2012, at the point I left for good, it was, you know, uh, already... Uh, competing head to head with the U.S. for all the big, all the biggest economy, biggest trade, biggest um, you know, b- biggest manufacturer competitions. Um, after China, I still hung around Asia for a while. I coasted on that China, that China train for a while. Uh, I lived in Thailand for for a bit, uh, and then in Vietnam. But even in Thailand and Vietnam, I was still heavily involved with 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 China. I would go up there. I would teach in Shanghai every year, and uh, my clients were from China or going into China. So it was, um, I, I was, I wasn't in China, but I was still heavily involved with China. It's 2020. Uh, you know, I, I give advice to, to clients about strategic planning and the strategic direction of the supply chain. So I finally started taking my own advice and, um, even during lockdown, I started. I was studying Spanish and getting ready for my Mexico move. Um, so that brings you pretty much up to speed. I've been in Mexico for the last two years. I run a uh, an advisory called North America Strategic Planning, where I I, I help anyone, any any anyone interested in uh, setting up in in Mexico. I can be your um, your presence on the ground, but really, I'm set up for helping people with Asian supply chains, either move those supply chains to Mexico, expand those supply chains into in, Mexico, or find some way of using Mexico as a plan B because of the proximity, because of the uh, regulatory um, the regulatory incentives to export to the United States and because of the cost base. So that's the good news on Mexico. 
Well, I think this is very timely because we're seeing and hearing more and more about um, companies um, investing in Mexico to set up uh, manufacturing bases there. Um, and these companies from all over the world, uh, but uh, you know, U.S. companies, um, I believe the uh, NAFTA II or the USMCA uh, trade agreement was a major impetus for that. Um, but I also under the impression that this uh, process of putting uh, manufacturing in Mexico started quite a while back. So um, let's, if you will, give us, uh, walk us through a little bit about the history of of sort of the um, Mexico uh, as a, uh, a host for operations for companies in general, and then to what at what point did China enter into the uh, into the picture? Okay, you, you might have to keep me on track. There's a lot there. Um, let's look at the border between U.S. and, and Mexico. It's a 2,000 mile border that stretches from Tijuana to um, Matamoros on the uh, on, on the Gulf of Mexico on the Atlantic side. That area, that region which is sometimes called the Frontera, down here sometimes called uh, the Maculadora, which really just means factory, or the Maculadora Zone. That area has been in play mostly by U.S. automakers for, you know, go going on 100 years now. I mean, it really started to come into its own, but it's been a uh, part of for, since, since uh, just after World War II. So that is where most of the action is. When, when, when people think about manufacturing in Mexico, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the, the Maculadora uh, or Frontera or border, um, but that is sometimes called the Imex zone. But that's what we mean. We're talking about just over the border, there are factory towns that go from Tijuana all the way across to, um, to, to uh, Matamoros and Brownsville on the Texas side. Um, so that is where uh, Matt, that, 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 that's where the 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 maculadora economy or the manufacturing economy used to be confined to. It was a little bit around Mexico, but mostly on the border, because the idea was um, Mexico did not want manufacturing that was going to compete with the home market. So Mexico set up all the, with the United States uh, set up two programs that facilitate the the manufacture in Mexico for export out of Mexico, usually the United States. So on the coming into Mexico, there's a program called IMEX. And if you are a, uh, if you are a registered business and you have, uh, you've, you've registered for this program, you do not pay VAT or you get a refund on your VAT the first year. You, uh, you, uh, and after that, you, you, you get your VAT waived on materials and on equipment. Now, on the other side, so you're not paying duties for, for materials coming in. And on the other side, going up to the US uh, using USMCA, or down here, we say TMAC, um, there, it, it's usually duty-free or low-duty low, low uh, going from Mexico to the United States. So if you, if you arrange it correctly, it is Low tariff, low duty to no duty, coming in and going and going out. So that is what made Mexico popular for big multinationals. The auto industry started it, but all of these other big, um, you know, aerospace, medical devices, electronics, 
uh, machinery, they followed. Because uh, at the beginning, a lot of them were doing assembly work. But nowadays, if you go to a Caterpillar factory in Monterey, or you go to a General Motors factory or Ford factory, it is an American factory that happens to be in Mexico. They have designed it, it's you know, designed and, and built and, 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 and tested to the specifications of any factory in the United States, in, that, in Ford border towns. They're all Six Sigma black belts. Yeah, Six Sigma black belts. Uh, they, everything's ISO 9000 or 9001, whatever, whatever the appropriate certification is. They're all about the Toyota way or the, the General Motors way or the, the Caterpillar way, whichever way is, uh, is, is appropriate for them. Uh, they're really into this cutting edge American style factory management. And that is, is what is so, that, that, that's why they're so popular with large scale manufacturers. Okay, and we're going to come back to this, Jesse. Um, we knew a lot of people who were starting smaller companies. SMEs in China and Taiwan. And we're going to talk about their situation in Mexico in a moment. So that is uh, the history of the, 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 the quick and dirty history of the Maculadora region. Now, it, it's worked so well that it is starting to spread with it into the interior of the country. So there's a second wave, the second line of, of, of cities in you know, let, let's call it the central, central Mexico. It's sometimes called this, the, the it, Mexico sometimes said to have more than one economy. So the, what I explained at the beginning was the Maculadora or the international manufacturing economy. This one, the Bajio or the central economy is much more interesting and it, it will look much more familiar to people coming from China. And here I'm talking about cities like uh, Guadalajara, and Carretero and uh, Lyon, and you know, around uh, Mexico City, just south of Mexico City is Puebla, which isn't really included in this group, but it's it's still in the center. And these cities tend to be a little bit more um, diverse, economically diversified. They have their own markets. They they have their own middle class. On the border, it's hit or miss. Tijuana has some rich sections and poor sections. Monterey has some very rich sections, but in the middle, like um, Juarez and um, you know, some of the cities in uh, Sonora, not, not so much. Nogales, not so, not so great. But the cities in central are much more diversified uh, economies. And that's where a lot of the action is, is now centered. So I've just come back from uh, Guadalajara. I spent a month in Guadalajara uh, doing some, some client stuff. And uh, I'm a big fan. That was the first time, my first deep dive into uh, one of these central cities. And it, it had a very um, ready for business feel to it. They, they're, they're, they would be ready for action. The only problem, and we'll, we'll circle back to this a little bit later, is the, um, the occupancy rate in Mexico. It is um, high. Okay. Well, before we get into the details, um, I'd like to really kind of stick on the on the big picture for a little while so um obviously mexico benefited from um you having a, a low cost of labor and proximity to the united states and it would make sense to to, to develop these large uh, industrial zones or manufacturing centers there 
Um, and you mentioned that the Mexican government had in place preferential policies on both um, imports of, of inputs and then on, um, I guess, taxation of, of, of profit or VAT, et cetera. Um, before you correct me on that, uh, you know, there are some policies in place. But I'd like to, it, when you answer that, also, I have to imagine uh, there's a component of the U.S. policy towards Mexico, imports from Mexico, that's also a factor. Or, you know, how is that treated? Is it treated differently than other countries? Yes. Okay. Because of U.S. Uh, MCA, it's basically duty-free bringing stuff. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. I meant going sort of back to the origin of the creation of these zones, and then we'll trail down on U.S. MCA a little bit. Pre, Pre-USMCA, was there any sort of U.S. beneficial taxation towards imports from Mexico? Was it well, different well, than there other was NAFTA. Uh, there was NAFTA, which in some ways was actually more beneficial. Um, previous to that, no, I don't think there was much. I mean, there were some programs for the auto industry. But since the 70s, I'm going to have to check on this. I don't really know the, the history of NAFTA. But... Um, since the the, the 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 70s, there's been a pretty organized push to um, to, to set up uh, factory zones for the U.S. U.S. manufacturers in Mexico. Right. So that was irrespective of any sort of special treatment from the United States side towards imports from Mexico. Is what I was trying to understand. There was a precursor to going back about 30 years. Okay. So um, I don't know if we we covered. I'm sorry, I'm not as um, as up to speed on the on the history of NAFTA, but um, it's a it's the, the the program we have now is uh, pretty significant, and it it compares very favorably with uh, the um, the the tariff and the the duties levied on other countries. Okay, um, maybe now if it makes sense, let's talk a little about USMCA and what that does. For this, this you know, this theme of, of putting manufacturing in Mexico, what what special benefits are in place? The the main thing is the it's it's duty free, zero zero duties. Uh, low, no, low low or no duties, depending. Okay. Um, they have their own uh, program for the auto industry. Um, they have uh, a lot of limits on on uh, local content, which actually just went up under U.S. Uh, MCA. And um, there are some, you know, t- uh, customs is harmonized. There are certain programs that, that, that there are fast track. Um, you know, there are, there are special lanes. There's a special zone for uh, around the border, 25 miles on each side of the border. So the trucks don't need to go through the entire registration process when they cross the border. But for the most part, it's about the it's about the tariffs. It's it's the duty free. Okay. So what's um, so USMCA has had a big impact uh, on this on this theme and made uh, manufacturing bases in Mexico very attractive, uh, correct? Yes. So yeah. um, one question I have is uh, presumably the intention of USMCA was to develop you know indigenous companies and manufacturing and trade. So um, what's to prevent say um, not Com- you know, companies from outside um, that aren't sort of indigenous to just take ben- uh, to take advantage of this, or is it open to anyone? And there's no there's no distinction between you know whether you're a Chinese company or Mexican company. Or there's no distinction. If you to to do this program, you have to register. 
So a Chinese company who comes to Mexico is registering uh, as a Mexican entity, or they're working through a partner company called a shelter provider. But one way or another, they are representing, you know, they are acting as a Mexican entity, uh, conforming to both EMEX regs and USMCA regs. Um, and if they do that, they will get duty free. And I don't think they're as active as people say, because they're not showing up on the top 10 investor list. Um, but they seem to be active. Um, I saw a few Chinese entities in Guadalajara, but the real concentration for the Chinese is in Monterey. Uh, there's a, they've got their own industrial park, mega park, uh, called Hofusan. And Hisense is the anchor tenant, I believe. Hisense is involved. I don't know if they're the anchor, but Hisense is involved. They're the, the TV, the electronics maker, and they're producing in Mexico. And most, you know, I'm sure that some of it's being sold in Mexico, but, um, you know, when, when the Chinese move to Mexico, they're, they're looking at the U.S. market. Yeah, I think Hisense is making um, cameras, surveillance cameras with artificial intelligence and all that type of thing um, oh. as, as well. So that they're, uh, it's a very topical, I guess, to think about the um, security interests. And, but I, I know also there's, I think, uh, Fufeng, I think a furniture maker is in Hofusan yeah. and, and a few others. So it's, it's a, seems to be a combination. Yeah, the furniture, makers were, the furniture makers were the first over, but it's the electronics companies we're looking at. Now I did um I did take a look at the Hofusan uh, website and um it was not uh particularly uh, I thought user friendly and including some of the sort of the backers no. uh it, it didn't I wouldn't say it gave a lot of um comfort that this is a you know you kind of really open publicly facing type of entity but but it is seems to be the most important Chinese industrial base, at least in the Monterey area. So maybe, maybe you, can we talk about that as a case study? Um, not that much, because I have not been able to find out that much information about it either. I know some people working in there, so I can give you some, um, some anecdotal uh, stories and information. Hofusan is one of these legendary Chinese investments that uh, started with, you know, an impulse where the, 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 the story is that the, the, the lead investor, uh, the, I forget the name of the furniture company, but the owner of a furniture company um, apparently made the investment over the phone before he even saw the property. Uh, and he, the first time he, he went to Mexico was to, was to get the keys to his new, his new industrial park. Is it true? I don't know. Uh, it's a very big investment. It's very centralized. Um, it, it seems to be private, but you know, uh, private, a private Chinese firm making large international investments, it, 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 there might be some, there, there may or may not be some um, coordination centrally back, back, in, back in China. But the plans for the, for the park are very ambitious. They plan on going much, much further uh, than, than what they have now. Um, could it work? Yeah, I guess it could. Um, I know people who are, I know Mexicans who are uh, consulting on the project and they have been having the, the, the exact same kinds of problems that Chinese firms have when they do these BRI projects in other countries all the time. 
the Chinese want to bring in all their own stuff. They want to bring in all their own equipment, all their own workers, uh, all their own processes, and they don't really share information and they're not really, uh, they're not really conforming with all the codes that they're supposed to. So for every decision, there are three or four other follow-up decisions and meetings and, and emergency meetings, crisis meetings. Um, that's the way they operate overseas, though. I've seen the, the Chinese do this in other places, and it works out. You know, this, this is this is just part of their management style. Um, they'll get it. the The question is, will they be able to make the model work as far as conforming to the customs regs for the U.S.? Because that has not been going as well as um, other other things. Um, so that's one of the big questions. And then two, will they be able to um, get the, you know, source the materials? This is a big challenge in China because China does not have, I'm sorry, this is a big challenge in Mexico because Mexico does not have the same uh, contract manufacturing or OEM environment or ecosystem that China does. And what we're finding is no one does. This is a very unique aspect of the Chinese economy. You can bring someone, you know, your little device, and they'll make it work. They'll make 10,000 of them. No one else will really do that. Everyone else wants to see schematics and a bill of materials and uh, they would see what you, you know, your list of sources. China's the only place manager will find sources for you. In Mexico, they won't. Uh, and in Mexico, in many cases, they can't. So we're all watching this Chinese investment uh, to see if they are going to import that contract manufacturing ecosystem. And so far, it looks like they are not. That may happen, but it might not happen. There's a real chicken and egg problem because without you know an independent OEM type contract manufacturer, when they move to Mexico without, you know, there's not a lot of orders waiting for them because no one knows they're here yet. So it's going to be a clunky process uh, for the Chinese to try to uh, replicate their contract manufacturing model in Mexico. So that's why I said at the beginning, we'll talk about SMEs uh, a little further down the line. That's the situation. If you are um, if you are General Motors or if you are um, um, a, a Caterpillar or if you're Tesla, you don't really have to worry about your your, um, your source, your sources, because that's, you've got a whole department. You've got an international department working on it and you're bringing in containers all the time. You have to make the, the tax situation work, the, uh, the the custom situation work in Mexico. But for the most part, you don't have to source, you know, you, you don't have to scramble for sourcing if you're Caterpillar or General Motors. Whereas if you're a small op operator and you're moving from Shenzhen, where all your sources are within walking distance, you know, everything is right outside your door and you come to Mexico, you may have a little bit of difficulty finding some of your components and finding some of your, especially uh, electronics parts. So that's one of the challenges we're looking at. And we're trying to figure out if the Chinese are going to, which, which direction the Chinese are going to go. Are they going to go to their manufacturing model for, that's been so profitable for them in, in Shenzhen with the contract manufacturing approach? Or are they going to be more, um, more vertically integrated and have captive um, contract manufacturing and, and captive supply chain where they're only producing for Hisense or they're only producing for their, their anchor 
um, you know, their national champion. So that's what we're trying to figure out with the Chinese, and we don't know yet. The Chinese have been very interested in the Mexican market. Um, these are private companies. There is no BR, BRI activity. There's no Belt and Road Initiative activity in Mexico because that seems to be prohibited by USMCA. So we're not going to see the big infrastructure projects like Peru, for example. Peru has this project called the Chang'e Port, which is being built by the Chinese. It is an integrated port and a highway and industrial center. Special, what we would call in China, a special economic zone. So they're building this giant integrated infrastructure project. You're not going to see that in Mexico in the near future. I don't know what's going to happen in the fullness of time. But for right now, um, I, there's, there's no plans to extend BRI to Mexico. But BRI Chinese have been very active in other parts of Latin America. So that is a cause for some concern. But on a private level, the Chinese have been active here, but they've been active on a very um, uh, branded level. They're not doing a lot of contract manufacturing and, and processing and servicing or even supplying for regular industry, just their own their own group. Now, um, the uh, impression just of Mexico in general, um, it seems that it's very much open for business. There's a lot of activity, which was somewhat unexpected when you had this, um, I guess, nominally socialist president, uh, Lopez Obrador, elected. I think, you know, you, you when you think of socialists, you don't think of uh, open for business. So um, maybe give us a sense for for what the the, the government's uh, policy towards uh, investment and trade is from the Mexican side. Okay, the investment in national, we're going to go for national government and then we're going to go state and municipal government. The national government attitude towards international business based in Mexico is not positive. AMLO, we, we call him AMLO. AMLO is not a fan of the MNCs, of the multinationals. Um, he is tolerant of them. He is, he's left leaning by, by local standards. He's not exactly socialist, although he is socializing industries. Uh, he nationalized the lithium, the lithium fields. So yeah, okay. Um, he's semi, semi-socialist. Um, yeah, he is not pro-business, but he is sort of pragmatic. He's a populist. And he knows the United States is right there. So he um, he needs that he needs the, the USMCA deal. Uh, without it, it, without it, the Mexican economy suffers. He likes for people to come in. He likes for um, international groups to come in, build expensive plants, train local workers, uh, spend a lot of money making stuff, and then trucking it right to the border as soon as possible. So that is his policy, and he is marginally facilitating that policy by not messing it up. He doesn't like the United States. He doesn't like Americans particularly. He doesn't particularly like Biden, but he likes being a populist. Uh, he is very hot, very, he's very popular. He's up in the 60s, uh, his, his popularity number. And every, they publish his, his stats like every day. He gives a long, almost diatribe type speech every morning. 
He is really a, a man of the people, uh, and he knows he know he knows he needs the international cooperation to keep Mexico uh, to keep Mexico going, and Mexico has been going. Uh, it's doing well. There's a very quiet boom going on to the point where uh, occupancy levels are getting towards 100%. And this is a problem for me. And this is okay, a Occupancy levels of what? Factories, industrial parks, and commercial wow. buildings. Yeah. Yeah. The official number is 97%. But if you go to the places that Westerners care about, like Monterey and Guadalajara, uh, and um, in, in, in Leon and Guerrero, it's going to be like 98, 99, 100%. So site selection is in Mexico is the number one challenge. And here's that problem that we talked about earlier. These multinationals who have been on the border forever have, have land. So they're just building now. You know, they're just building more and more on the, their existing properties. They're buying new property where they can, but they, they have the advantage in that they have the wherewithal and they're also they've got the registrations, they've got the connections, they've got the, the resources. They can just build new plants. Whereas if you're coming in, you you know, you're you're coming in from Shenzhen and you want to see if there's, you know, what the what the situation in Guadalajara is to, to move your um your your testing facility or to move your circuit board facility, um, you may have to wait six months to a to a year. Well, six months. Well, I don't know. We don't know. Um, you know, they're moving apace. They're not, the, the federal government in Mexico is not slowing things down, but it's not China. They're not bending over backwards. They're not clearing out land and, and, and bulldozing and, and stringing wire and, um, and digging, digging for pipes because the government decided. Now, on the municipal and on the state level, it's better, but. So in Monterey, they're really pushing for business. They really want international business uh, in Nueva León and Monterey. And in Guadalajara, um, they, they're, they're, they, they really want foreign investment. The problem is these guys are elected. Everyone, in, in, I think it's everyone, but I know the governors and the president are elected for one six-year term. When they go, the new guy comes in and starts a whole new program. So Guadalajara has these like these two huge, huge facilities for international trade and design or international design. That's that's what Guadalajara was pushing for. And then a new governor came in and he had a different priority. So those buildings are still there. And I guess they're doing stuff in them, but they're not, it's not like the Canton Fair in China, where it's an institution and every year you know the government's gonna support it and build up, you know. Make it bigger and better, and 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 it's very robust. In Mexico, not so much. So the uh, federal government treats international business as a geopolitical variable. They want it as it as it helps them, as it helps AMLO secure his popularity, uh, and it, which does. The the governors and the municipalities are much more pro-business, but they have less ability to do things and they um, it, it's not a national policy, so it doesn't have the same inertia and the same heft as we saw in China with a five-year plan. 
So in China, we had too much planning, too much interference from the government. In Mexico, we have too little planning and too little involvement from the government. Okay. So um, in terms of what should, um, what's important for um, uh, people, let's say, who are um, uh, investors or following international events, uh, but you know, focused on on Asia or U.S. China. What should they know about what's happening in Mexico now? What are they missing? Okay, the the, the big three, uh, the big three advantages of Mexico exist whether you're doing well in China or doing well in Asia or not. One is proximity. Two is uh, the, the regulations, regulations and duties, and the whole regulatory uh, and customs authority. And, um, and three is the cost base. So if you are in, if you're, if you're producing in Shenzhen right now, and I know a lot of people who are still doing it, um, the attitude it seems to be they're going to stick with it until they're the last moment. This is, their, their attitude is as long as it's profitable, we're staying in Shenzhen. When it becomes unprofitable, we'll move. Okay. So what they have to understand is Mexico offers a host of competitive advantages, not just in manufacturing, not just in logistics, but you know the low cost base means it's possible to um, to, to warehouse. You, the, the warehousing decision is much cheaper here. You're much closer to market. In some cases, hours. But even in worst case scenario, it's a couple, it's six or seven days to read to truck stuff to your most far flung client in, in, in North America. You're talking about a, a week or so. So the advantages, the operating advantages in, in Mexico for, for costs, for regulatory compliance, and for marketing, for closeness to the, the, the customer are, are things that you can, you can do, you can make use of, even if you are determined to keep your supply chain in uh, Asia. So if you're in Shenzhen, or if you're a lot, like a lot of people, if you're moving from Shenzhen to Vietnam or to Thailand, and you're, you're rolling those dice that you're going to be able to avoid the geopolitical risks of being in Asia. You're going to be able to avoid the uh, trade war issues. You're going to be able to avoid China hostility issues. You're going to be able to avoid shipping disruptions. Uh, and you're going to be able to avoid having your supply chain contaminated by Chinese materials that aren't supposed to be in your supply chain. Even if you're willing to take all those risks and keep your operation in, in, um, in um, Vietnam or in Southeast Asia, uh, I'm telling people that you should still, you, you should go with that shift from just-in-time inventory management to just-in-case inventory management, which means that, you know, there was a time when, you know, before 2021, when we didn't really think about logistics too much. And if you're, you know, as soon as your stuff left the factory uh, in China, you were pretty much done. You weren't 100% done, but for the most part, you could count on uh, the shipment, you know, the, the logistics machinery working just fine like it always did. In 2021, that broke down, uh, or 2020. But when there was a big crisis, 
with the, the 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 boats stacked up around Ningbo and around Los Angeles, that broke down. And that's when we made the switch from just in time to just in case. Now, in 2021, 21 people said okay nothing we can do you know no one knew black swan event different it was a black swan this time around it's not going to be a black swan there's a lot of stuff that can disrupt your supply chain if you're coming out of vietnam what i'm telling people to do is to investigate mexico start looking at warehousing and logistics options so you can keep you know, excess supply, you can keep your emergency stock in Mexico on this side of the water so that you can service those those uh, U.S. clients without any bottlenecks, disruption, service, service uh, supply chain cuts, contaminated supply chains. People aren't going to have any sympathy for you next time around. Last time during COVID, everyone was, you know, what, what, you know everyone was throwing their hands up. It's a whole, every day was a, a whole new terrible world, but that's not the way it's going to be next time. So start looking at moving some of your operations to Mexico, especially the warehousing, the packaging, um, assembly. You won't get full benefits, but uh, of 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 NAFTA. I'm sorry, of uh, USMCA. You won't get full benefits, but it will still be cheaper than than trying to uh, warehouse in in China. And um, you will eliminate at least one of your supply chain risks, which is those boats now, not being able to cross the water. Yeah. Now, one uh, traditional benefit of Asia has been the availability of, of um, I, I don't know what you say, like uh, productive labor at, at a you know at an affordable cost, uh, whatever the term is, because it's not it may be low skilled, but it may be actually medium skilled. You know that. Is uh, but pr- efficient and and also I think that generally you don't have to deal with labor unions and and other things uh, that make it, it challenging. Although I do here in China, it's difficult to fire people. But in any case, um, talk to us a little bit about Mexico. What what's the availability of labor like? Uh, how is a management labor relations done? Uh, what are what are the issues there? Okay, three economies in Mexico. So first, let's talk about that Macaladora. The, the multinationals, the people Tesla is going to be hiring, the people General Motors are hiring. If these guys, the, some of these guys that they're hiring in Mexico are going at 16 US dollars per hour because they have to be paid. It, one of the USMCA laws rules is if you're involved in the auto trade, you have to be paid, you, a certain percentage of labor has to be paid minimum wage, US minimum wage, US union minimum. Uh, U.S. minimum. So um, that was one of the things put in place to um, to uh, protect U.S. jobs. So on the Maculadora zone, you're looking for U.S. level productivity at maybe half the U.S. the, the, the U.S. labor cost, which isn't as good as what you can, it, which isn't as cost effective as what you can get in in China. On the headline price, but productivity is higher. Productivity in these Mexican factories built by the American automakers should approach the productivity of U.S. U.S. facilities because they basically are U.S. facilities. So um, availability has been okay. 
Um, unemployment in Mexico is like 3%, but it doesn't cover all the, um, it doesn't cover all the economies equally. So Maculador zone, you're paying more, you're getting high quality, high skilled labor um, that is comparable to US labor, um, but it is getting more expensive. It is getting harder to find, especially on the border regions. Now people move in, there's a migration. <coughs> So um, it's it's um, it, it a lot of these these bottlenecks are going to be loosened, but you know there's more demand lining up. So the Maculadora section, um, there is availability, but it's going to be a little expensive. It should still be more product pro productive than Chinese labor, and definitely more than Vietnamese or Thai labor. In the central area, and that's like from Mexico City over to Guadalajara and stretching up towards towards Monterey, um, there is this is the central zone. Labor isn't quite as expensive until recently. There were, it, labor was plentiful, and there's still it's still you know you can still find labor. Uh, it's available, but it is not as loose a labor market as it was a few years ago. Uh, uh, and if you want, you know, guys with shovels or guys with brooms, uh, real or, or, or mops, service industry, tons of people for pennies, pennies an hour. So it depends on what you're looking for. Up at, at this point, labor availability is still good, but it's the next thing I'm watching. Um, let me put it this way, Jesse. If there was more land, labor would probably be hired harder to find. Yeah, it makes sense. So as soon as you're the bottleneck of industrial property, we'll revisit the labor question. So um, looking uh, from the, the Chinese perspective, what what are the major areas of investment you've seen coming from China into Mexico? Okay, they can't do the infrastructure plays that they like. So we're not seeing a lot of that yet. Uh, that may happen at some point. But for the most part, they are sticking to basic industry to mid-level electronics. So they're here making shoes. They're here making furniture. They're here trying to do textiles. So they have to import everything because there's no more textile industry here. Um, so they're starting with basic stuff. The furniture is getting a lot of play, although I don't know how big an industry it is um, for, for Mexico, really. Um, the The... The real test is when the Mexicans move, I'm sorry, when the Chinese move up to mass electronics production. Uh, we're not there yet. We have a couple of companies, but, um, you know, Huawei isn't here. Uh, I don't think Lenovo is here doing production. Um, the car companies aren't here, though they will be. You know, that's when we'll really see, that, that, that's what we're waiting for. So, so far, the Chinese aren't putting their champions here. They're, they're national champions, not yet. So what, how would you describe their sort of current strategy? What, what those sort of mid-level industrial electronics companies, what's their calculus in setting up these factories in Mexico and, and how successful has it been? They're looking at the U.S. market. That's the reason to be here. Mexico itself just doesn't have the, 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 the market size to make them a priority. Uh, and again, they can't get the infrastructure deals that the government and the party likes. So the, the 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 Chinese that are here are 
like 99% focused on, on exporting to the U.S. market under USMCA low, no duty programs. So far, they've not been completely successful. They are going to have problems with customs. But once they get that right, yeah, you're going to see a lot of Chinese imports coming up from Mexico, made in Mexico. Uh, and it's and also really fun. Basically, does that mean they get better margins from versus shipping it from China or, or some other country in Asia? Sure. First of all, they're avoiding the twenty percent tariff, and second, they're not paying. You know, they're not paying for that ocean trip. They're sending stuff across. You know, you can drive from Monterey to to Texas in like two hours, maybe more, but it's not far. I mean, it's there are road signs. If you're around Monterey, there are road signs for Texas. So do you think then that we're going to see just a, a, a boom in sort of more and more of these Chinese companies uh, following the same model? I mean, given the amount of Chinese exports to the U.S., I mean, if even a, you know, a fraction of that shifted, I don't know, 5%, 10%, that would be very, a very a, quite a big jump in terms of the impact on, on Mexico. I think, you are, we're, I think we're in the process of seeing that. I don't know how well it's going to work, but um, again, this is these aren't government programs, so they don't have that. You know, we'll come hell or high water, we're going to stay. We're going to stay in place. Um, you know, these are these are Chinese privates, so yeah, they may throw in the towel. They've done it uh, in other places, but um, for the most part, they're already executing the strategy of. Locating near the border, producing, um, you know, as close to U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, USMCA guidelines, you know, requirements as possible, and then accessing the U.S. market. And as long as those tariffs are staying in China, on China from the U.S., those twenty percent or so tariffs and other restrictions, um, I, I think you're going to continue to see the Chinese are going to be active here. Now, I think the, um, you know, in, historically, it's been favorable to, you know, have also a cost base in, in Mexican peso, you know, versus the dollar. But I would say the peso has been somewhat strong against, particularly against other emerging market currencies. Yeah. Is that yeah. uh, sort of a potential hiccup in, in all this if, if you have a very, for whatever reason, a, a strong peso versus the dollar? Yes, it is. Um, yes. It's, um, it's been surprising. I don't know how sustainable it is. Uh, we've seen a 15% move over the last 24 months, which I find extremely annoying. Um, and yeah, it's definitely affected the, the cost base. Plus, Jesse, you've got inflation. So if you're in the US, if you're a US investor, uh, between currency and inflation, you've seen your, your costs rise by uh, around 30% over the last two years. And that's hefty. Um, but it seems that all the it seems the worst news is already in. Um, the inflation inflation seems to be moderating, and uh, I'm assuming that um, at some point the currency is going to stop rising. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely having an impact. The 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 issue though is once you leave Mexico, um, there aren't that many emerging market situations in North America. The United States is expensive uh, for labor and for, uh, you know, for, for real estate. Now, the ideal situation is going to be 
for there to be a, a Mexican manufacturing base, and in the same company, a U.S. management and U.S. R&D base. I think that is uh, the way of the future. But I don't know if that is a very popular view. Uh, there don't seem to be a lot of other people that are pursuing this at the moment. So, yeah, the Chinese, the Chinese um, do continue their policy of, and again, it's, it's continue their trend. Let's not even call it a policy, Jesse. Let's call it a trend. If they continue the trend of locating private private manufacturers in Mexico to avoid tariffs and to be closer to the U.S. market, uh, I think you're going to see two effects. Uh, I think the Chinese are going to have much more influence in Mexico on industrial policy and on on you know commercial commercial trends, and that's not very necessarily good for the United States or for us. Um, but number two, you may see enough industrial capacity that it's possible to reproduce this um, contract manufacturing OEM model in Mexico, which would be great for entrepreneurs from the United States. So it's a double edged Can you expand a little bit? Like, so basically, um, oh, I think, so at the moment, you know, a company, a branded company, an ODM needs to have its own base and control all, all that but at some point mexico may get to the level where they'll be able to produce any you know things for any company as an oem model and that just become an industrial hub uh, open source sort of speak that, that that that's a hope it's more my hope jesse than anyone's published policy but just extrapolating on the the model that they've, they've started that is one possible outcome that we are able to that the chinese build up a critical mass in manufacturing, they have excess capacity, and they start developing the contract manufacturing model that was so successful first around Shanghai and then Shenzhen. Um, the other possibility, there are two other possibilities. Possibility two is uh, under the, the pressure of these regulations and of customs requirements, uh, the, 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 Mexican, uh, the Chinese model in Mexico collapses. And there's not enough demand, and uh, they can't make it work. Or uh, option number three is they do make it work, but they keep everything siloed and they the Chinese are only working with other Chinese companies and the U.S. entrepreneurs are starved out. It, it, back to the my question on the labor, um, it, we haven't heard about any sort of significant labor relations problems. Is it just generally fairly friendly uh, relations in, in Mexico? No, it's pretty unfriendly. Um, the reason you don't hear about it is because the U.S. media, English language media on Mexico is terrible. Uh, there have been two big incidents where unions have sued um, automakers and won. Um, there is, all, all these maquiladoras are required to have unions, but they're friendly, they're, they're corporate friendly unions. So the workers aren't, don't feel they're treated properly. So they want their own unions. And the automakers and the government have been able to stop, dissuade them from doing that. Um, well, now, the, uh, after, after USMCA, it gave unions, union organizers more power in Mexico. So they are pushing back and they are pushing for, uh, for better conditions and for, uh, for, for higher wages. So there is some labor tension, but it's, generally it's not a big problem. Um, from a management perspective, that is one of the advantages that Mexico has over China. 
uh, because Mexico is the same time zone and it's the same org chart, you have a, it's, you have a direct line uh, through the entire organizational or, org chart. Whereas in China, you've got to always play that game of telephone where because of the 12 hour difference, you can never have a conversation. You can't exchange multiple messages in the same day and you can't get on the same on a phone without you know, a big negotiation. In Mexico, you don't have that problem. That's a great point. Obviously, you don't have so the communists. When I, I talk, when I go down and I talk to, yeah, you don't have the party in your in your meetings. So um, the, the, the attitude, here's how I describe it. In China, an ambitious manager working at your company, manager wants a better job at the same company and maybe do his time, do two to five years in Texas or California. That's the big ambition in Mexico. So it's a completely different management management vibe, management feeling. The, the workers and the managers in the Mexican version of a, a, a US company feel like they are part of the company. They wear the t-shirt of the company. That's the expression here. Um, they, they, they're into it. They like it. Um, whereas in China, there was always, you know, and, and this is what was my job. My job was, was in China was negotiation training. So even when they were friendly, even when everything was going well, there was an undercurrent of competition. And that's something you just don't see in Mexico. The Mexicans don't want to leave your company and start their own. They want to move up in your company. That's really interesting. Um, now we've seen in the last couple of years, um, again, I think with, with some of the, you know, going back obviously with under the Trump administration and then continue with the Biden administration, the push to have onshoring of the semiconductor industry. Yeah. And we've seen announcements of huge investments by, uh, Intel, TSMC, Samsung, a lot of that is centered in Arizona. And, um, you know, the semiconductor industry, I imagine, would need a whole ecosystem and supply chain uh, for that. So would some of that maybe filter into Mexico, uh, some of that be located there? We hope so. Um, Mexico does not have a natural facility uh, for, for semiconductors. Um, their, their level of technological development at the academic level isn't considered you know, uh, they're not considered a player in semiconductors. But that being said, um, all of these between Texas and uh, and Arizona and, you know, don't forget California, there is a, a, a very strong, very a robust, uh, high-tech ecosystem just north of the border. Mexico is uh, getting very involved in e uh, electric vehicles. They're getting more involved in electronics. Uh, they are. You are starting to see Western companies build clean rooms and build high-tech uh, facilities in Mexico, which means there's going to be a, a you know entire working population that is trained in uh, in in working with the you know what we consider high-tech. In Taiwan, this wouldn't be considered super high-tech. So, do I think there's going to be a fab in in Mexico? No, probably not. There's no water, there's no electricity, there's no, not enough money, and it tends to be uh, seismically active, which SABs don't like. But 
in Guadalajara, you might see uh, that there's like the design center. That's the, that's where Intel is, and that's where all the high techs are. Uh, you might see some R and D set up in places like Guadalajara and Mexico City and and Monterey. Uh, um, I don't think Mexico is going to play you know an outsized role in the semiconductor industry. But that being said, Mexico does play an outside role, an outsized role in auto and uh, in aerospace and medical devices. And those things are basically electronics with, you know, autos are electronics with wheels. Medical devices are electronics with, with a pump. Um, you know, they're very, you, you can't separate electronics from manufacturing anymore. So I think that you'll see a lot more cross-border collaboration in the United States where things are being made you know, there's a production facility in Mexico that's going to send some output up to the United States to be tested or to be processed. It's going back to Mexico to be uh, assembled. You know, I, I think that's the future. It's just moving stuff back and forth because it makes so much more sense than the supply chain we have now where things are going all the way around the world uh, to be sold in the United States. I think that right now we're going to see much... With, with the development of Mexico, uh, of Mexico's industrial base, you can keep a lot more of that uh, of that supply chain local. Well, uh, Andrew, that may be a pretty good place to to finish up. Um, if people are interested in getting in touch with you or following what you do, um, where should they go to uh, online to find you? Go to my site, nastrategy.com, which stands for North America Strategy. So nastrategy.com. Or you can just write to me at andrew at nastrategy.com. And presumably you have all of that in uh, Spanish and Chinese as well? No, I do not yet. Um, I have it, this in English. Uh, and then if you want to show off your Spanish, we'll have to talk. <laughs> um, let me see, see. Oh, also LinkedIn. Uh, I live on LinkedIn. So if you uh, want to uh, get in touch with me, LinkedIn is probably the best, the best place. Just Andrew Hubert at LinkedIn. Well, we're all going to be watching. I think it's a really exciting space and we're in the relatively early stages of it. So it really um, was helpful to get your uh, insights on that. And um, thank you very much for, for sharing those.